When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When something like a behavior such as my brother saying, I need to use your apartment because I, I'm trying to help out a friend and I say yes, and then I come in the next day and there's drug paraphernalia, I would try to remind, even when I was frustrated, remind myself that that's the addiction talking. That was Chris trying to protect this voice in his head that's saying, mm-hmm. you need these mm-hmm. substances and you need to do anything you can to get a hold of them. Welcome to the True Fiction Project a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I'm your host, Renita Hora. And today we are going to focus on a journey of love and loss. Now, many of you out there have had difficult times with family, with loved ones, with extended community. And when I say difficult times, I mean living with and loving people in our lives who have been through very, very difficult mental health issues, addictions, disorders, perhaps. So our guest today on the True Fiction Project is one such person, Arden O'Connor, who has been through a similar journey herself with her family members, and this led her to found the O'Connor Professional Group to address the needs of families and individuals struggling with an array of behavioral health issues, including some of these things I've mentioned, addiction, mental health disorders, eating disorders, and so on. So without further ado, let me welcome Arden O'Connor. Hi, Arden. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So Arden, getting right into it, this show is so much about understanding your own personal journey and what brought you to this place today. So when it comes to love and loss, tell us, where did this begin? How did this begin? It's a big question. The truth is the story of my brother began when he was very young. Being in the field, I'm not a data wonk, but it's very interesting to look at statistics that talk about, you know, the early onset, if you start drinking or using drugs at a a young age, the prediction is, I think the stat I saw recently that was pretty interesting is if you start around 12 or 13, your chances of having an addiction issue later in life is 41%, whereas if you wait till you're 21, it goes down to 9%. And for my brother, Chris, that was very much his story. We are Irish Catholic. It's probably no surprise with a last name like O'Connor. And the joke often is that O'Connor Professional Group could stay running just by serving its own family and friends network. But in my brother's case, he had a genetic predisposition and that 
predisposition showed itself early. When he was young, he was diagnosed with ADHD, which we know is a correlating factor to substance use. And I would say as early as 10, 11, 12, 13, he was starting to experiment with alcohol and marijuana. And that proved, I think, between that and the ADHD and and his highly intelligent but yet risk-taking personality, I think was the perfect storm to create an issue that became much more out of control as the years progressed. And it became quite acute during his high school years and his college years. But it really did start when he was quite young. So this must have been, I mean, jokes about the Irish Catholics aside, it must have been quite a traumatic experience for everybody involved. And my question is, since you say it was a genetic predisposition, was that a known fact at the time? Certainly not, if not in relation to him, but to perhaps others in the family? Absolutely. I mean, it, it was, and we use a lot of gallows humor in our family to, to deal with tragedy and loss. But to your point, while it was a known genetic predisposition, and my dad was very open about his issues related to alcohol and why he did not drink anymore, and he started that conversation when we were young, I think like many families, you know, my parents assumed that my brother was going to be somebody who struggled for a little bit, maybe experimented a little bit too much, but got back on the path, just like, you know, any other cousin, you know, any other story they'd seen of friends of the family or people who were older. And so I think the fact that for Chris, um, it not only became much more acute than other family members, but that therapists and psychiatrists were sort of at a loss throughout his journey as to what the solution was, because Chris mm. was quite resistant to help, very smart and and quite manipulative, which is a characteristic that, that comes with substance use. But I think for my parents, I think they often were standing there saying, like, how did we get here? And I think the scariest part about addiction for any family is that it's it's often uh, a surprise and often it happens incrementally at the same time. So it sounds like it's, I'm arguing both sides, but mm -hmm. on the one hand, family members often don't have any degree to the extent somebody is using how much they're using, why they're using, how desperate the situation is, particularly in situations similar to my brother's. But at the same time, they also know something's wrong. And along the way, I remember at one point during my brother's journey, my parents said, well, he'd probably been to rehab at five or six times at this point. And they said, well, he just relapsed on cocaine. It wasn't heroin this time. So we're going to have him go back to his job and go back to therapy. And I remember saying to them, like, in what world is it normal for somebody to be using cocaine in our family system? And that's what I mean about the incremental piece. So it's, mm. it's a surprise mm. and it's not at the same time. And I think families often do stand there 10 years, 20 years, however many years later saying, you know, I can't believe we're in this position. And we kind of saw it coming, if that makes any sense. So you've touched on so much, and, and there's a lot I want to get into, you know, the manipulative behavior and, you know, the, the therapists being at a loss. But before that, you mentioned something that parents really struggle with in that when it comes to raising their kids and raising their family, and they know that there are let's say, genetic issues or, or other events which mm, are negative, may not be positive. One school of thought says, talk to your kids about this early, you know, while they're young, because if they grow up with it, 
they will have a better understanding and be able to sort of safeguard against these kinds of events. The other school of thought is totally the opposite, which says, no, 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 don't expose your young, impressionable kids to these kinds of ideas because it is influential. I'd love to ask you about how you think about this. I think the the latter thought about like if we discuss it, they're going to think of it. I mean, I've heard similar things about sexual activity, condoms in school. I remember that years ago was a big controversy. I guess what I would say with the amount of information that's accessible through the internet and through social media, kids are going to be exposed to ideas whether parents like it or not. And it's impossible and not healthy. I mean, we've had parents who try to protect their kids from any possible hurt or emotion. And and I don't think that's the right solution either. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I sort of take the attitude that whether or not you're having conversations about drugs and alcohol with your child, somebody is, and it could be a peer and it could be a teacher, or it could be somebody who has a negative relationship with substances and is encouraging them to do not so great thing. So I think as parents, it's the responsibility of family members to figure out what's the messaging, how much do they want to disclose. And I'm not suggesting that parents need to sit down and show photo albums of every period of time when they had their own bouts of issues with substances or where they got Mm -hmm. drunk or anything like that. But I do think if, you know, one of the first things, the biggest question we get from our clients is how do we prevent a situation like your brother's from happening in our family system? And I always say the fact that my dad made no bones about the fact that alcohol was not something he could use within normal limits, that he Mm -hmm. had to give it up for the sake of himself and his family, and that he wanted us to go talk to him if we ever felt like our use was getting out of control. It opened a conversation that is sensitive, but that made it less, we were less nervous to go discuss it. And I feel like from my dad's perspective, he felt like he did everything he could. He warned us about like, this is, this is something that might be in your genetic history. Um, and I feel the same way about other medical conditions, cancer or anything else. I think we want to mm-hmm. raise humans in this world who are cognizant of all the various mental and physical health factors that may impact them over the life so they can get ahead of it as opposed to being scared or being confused as to why, you know, they're drinking in a much different fashion than their college-age peers, and they're having much bigger consequences. Mm. Now, Arden, you talk about, you know, the therapists and the medical providers being at a loss and your brother's own manipulative behavior. And I've heard you actually talk about this on your podcasts and things because others going through similar issues or related issues can also be patients, that is, can be quite manipulative. So help us understand that. Tell us what you saw with Chris. So what I always say about my brother Chris is I loved him as a human and I had to divorce who he was when he was under the influence, either actively right at that moment or within a couple of days, and who he was as a freestanding human when he was totally clean and sober because they were two different people. You know, the brother under the influence stole from me, stole jewelry and sold it on the street, did the same to my mother. You know, he left Mm. remnants of heroin and needles in my home that I found. And the brother that I loved and adored, you know, during sobriety and and before he had a a acute issue or in between when he would be sober and, and using would never do that. He would never deliberately hurt me. The simplest way for me in my mind would be to say this is when something like a behavior such as my brother saying, I need to use your apartment because I 
I'm trying to help out a friend and I say yes, and then I come in the next day and there's drug paraphernalia, I would try to remind, even when I was frustrated, remind myself that that's the addiction talking. That was Chris trying to protect this voice in his head that's saying, Mm -hmm. you need these Mm -hmm. substances and you need to do anything you can to get a hold of them. And many families, you know, many of the memoirs, Beautiful Boy, you know, the movies, Ben is Back, they'll portray this sort of element. Um, I think where it where it's toughest is for those who aren't the person directly in the immediate family or seeing that person every day. So I can think of extended family members. I can think of a grandparent in particular who for a while just said, he's just not a nice kid. And that, you know, very hard for my parents to hear that because they didn't believe that. I certainly didn't believe that, but I understand how an outsider could look at his story and say, he looks like an entitled little brat who got everything and still had to use. I truly believe it's a disease that hijacks the brain. That's what the science says. And that's what I saw firsthand witnessing my brother's activities. And I just, it's not always easy to do so, but I tried to remind myself of that in the worst moments when he would ask for something and either I knew it later or I knew it even at the time that he's asking for something without good intentions. Ask for something as in money or something to give him Mon- access to the drugs yeah money access to an apartment if he would try to there are even times my brother was quite smart and so there are times where and i always say this to families who call us you know he would go to a treatment center and he would complain the therapist doesn't understand me my roommate did this you know and we hear this all the time and that in my opinion is a form of manipulation for someone who's desperately afraid of giving up substances so they're going to point the finger at everybody around them to try and give a parent or particularly a reason to say, oh my gosh, I got to pick you up in my vehicle tomorrow um, because it sounds like you're having a terrible experience and I'm so sad for you, which is the dynamic we see with a lot of families. And I laugh a little because it, it takes, unfortunately, I just remember how my parents were in his first experience versus the fifth. You know, when somebody has done this a bunch, you know, by the time he called home, they would sort of say, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe you should go talk to your case manager at the facility about that. That doesn't sound like an issue that we're going to discuss with you, but that takes a while and it takes unfortunately kind of being burned a few times from trying to rescue someone from their own situation. Interesting. So you did see this perhaps then with his first stay. Did your parents actually go pick him up and do what they could to take him away? No, they didn't. You know, they they, uh, no, they didn't. He was in Arizona at that time and they were so scared. I think in the first stay, He was a little shell-shocked. He left school. He was at Georgetown. He left between his first and second semesters to go to Sierra Tucson in Arizona. And I think he was a little shell-shocked. He would complain about, you know, the therapist that thinks I shouldn't go back to school. I know that I can do it. I need, you know, and he would really play. He knew my parents really wanted him to finish college. So he would play more on that angle Mm -hmm. in the beginning. It was later in his stays that he would start to point to um, anything, you know, any little, he got smart enough to know that if he complained about silly things like the food or the linens of the place, no one was going to listen to that, but he would try and, um, he would try and make up stories like this is, you know, I remember at one point he said to me, I've already been through rehab five times. This is a waste of my time. There's nothing new I can learn here. And he kind of knew that, you know, there's a point at which our family felt like, okay, he's been to five, six, seven, eight, he wound up going to 15, different programs. So, you know, when you're on the eighth or the ninth one, we were already sort of thinking the same thing. And he would, he would always use that. The worst manipulation, honestly, in his case was more 
I remember one time he called my father and he claimed that drug dealers were chasing him and he needed money for a hotel. And, you know, he's getting my father in the middle of the night who hadn't heard from him in 24 to 48 hours. So he was already vulnerable. My dad gave him the money and then he disappeared again for a few days. So that that was more where I really saw it play out in a very negative way. But we do see it within our client population with, with people using it on even very small things. You know, they promised I would get X, the facilities only doing Y. Um, and similar to the person who's struggling, family members are often scared, confused, and angry that their loved one has this disorder. It's very different than someone having a cancer diagnosis. So parents want somebody to blame and it becomes, I mean, I can't tell you the number of calls I've been on with a facility saying, I know, I understand why this couldn't have happened. I also understand that, you know, the the person at the facility is getting their family revved up with the hope that somehow, you know, if the, if the parents perceive that they're being taken advantage of, that will mean that person gets to get out earlier or something like that. Mm. So where does the therapist or the medical provider come, you know, into all of this? What what role does the therapist or the medical provider have to play in all of this? You would think that they are sort of somewhere in between the parents and the patient and helping the situation. But then I've heard you and your parents say that many of these folks were at a complete loss for what to do. So it's a tough question because the answer, like many nuanced things, is it depends. It depends on the qualifications of the therapist and how addiction savvy there are. There are some therapists who are just out of their depth. And in many situations, including my brother's and, and even with his last relapse, he sought out a psychiatrist um, or I'm sorry, a medical provider to provide meds and didn't disclose that he had an addictive history. And so he said the right things in the office. And that's a mm. very common manipulative behavior. Someone with substance use says, everybody in my family's freaking out. I only drink five drinks a week. I don't know. And they just either completely lie or you know, embellish details that put them in a better position. So an addiction savvy therapist or psychiatrist can pick up on some of those nuances typically, um, mm -hmm. but somebody who's not addiction savvy. So that, so the big first question is, do they have the right qualifications? But I'm assuming that there is no way to verify any of that with anyone else because of HIPAA and privacy details and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So I was just, I was just going to say, so, so you can, on the outset, if it's a psychiatrist, you can get one that is certified in addiction medicine. Does it mean mm. they're necessarily high quality? No, but you at least know they've had, there's only, I think the quote I heard is there's only two hours in medical school dedicated to addiction training. So the average medical doctor has very little formal training on addiction. So um, you can get an ASAM certified psychiatrist who presumably knows a little bit more. But to your question, that was the second area I was going to, mm -hmm. you know, forgetting just are they outright trained in addiction? Do they work in a facility? Do they have any advanced training on addiction? The next question becomes like, do they get somebody, do they get a release signed? You know, my brother would never sign a release because he knew my parents would want to know what, you know, what was said in the session and how is he progressing? And if he was a few times, we pressured him to sign a release and he did, but he would revoke it as soon as he had an incident. And that's a very common behavior. And there's ways you can work around it. You can ask for a limited release. My parents finally got savvy and said, you know, if you don't have some degree of release, if we can at least confirm you're going to these sessions and get some information about whether you're maintaining sobriety, we're not going to pay for your apartment. And that's often what it takes. But many family members don't know that at the outset, they don't get a release signed. And so the person, even if they're paying for the facility, 
they could call the facility and the facility, if the release isn't signed, will say, I can't confirm or deny that that person is here. The last thing that makes it tricky with therapists and medical providers is they are trained, most therapists are trained to try to get to the root as to why someone is doing it, having a certain behavior, and they're trying to get a person motivated to make change. Addiction patients often aren't very motivated to make changes. The addiction has served them in a positive way. They've gotten, they enjoy the process of getting high. You know, they've, there's things, mm. there are benefits to, to so therapists, what I saw with my brother's case is therapists may have some basic knowledge about which facilities exist in their general area, what AA is, but it's very tricky if a person's already exhausted, you know, one, two, three facilities, and they're just cycling in and out. You know, there's a therapists aren't necessarily trained to figure out what's the next best creative way to solve this problem. And if mm -hmm. the patient is saying, I'm fine, I don't need any help. Yes, motivational interviewing and techniques like that can be helpful. But it isn't a therapist often is it becomes quickly out of their depth and is oftentimes trying to just do what we call harm reduction and really just get the patient to lessen the amount of risky behaviors they're doing rather than try to get them to total abstinence, which is the family's goal. And they are often in between families, which have a motivation of complete recovery and a patient who may only be willing to do like inch by inch changes, if that makes sense. Mm. So this is so hard though, Arden, because what does a family, parents, caretakers, what do they do? Especially in a situation like you mentioned where they've cycled their patient through one, two, three, I don't know how many different kinds of facilities and centers. I mean, I can think of countless numbers of people I know who have this kind of situation with a family member at home, not necessarily addiction, that exists a lot, but even other mental health issues, depression, and they're just sort of standing on guard you know, with this family member or loved one at home, hoping and praying that things are even keel and nothing goes wrong. What do they do? So we talked a little bit about being open about genetic predisposition. If you are a family that knows there's a genetic predisposition, doubling down on some of these other tips I'm going to say is very important because you already mm. know this might be coming down the pike. As parents of young children, you know, talking a lot about family values, being careful around how quickly you prescribe medication. I do think one of my parents' regrets is that they didn't pursue alternatives to ADHD medication because it started him on a course of, they were, the non-addictive ADHD medications were just coming onto the market as my mm. brother. So he was put on pretty addictive meds pretty early. I would also say taking substance use very seriously. And that sounds very colloquial, but I can't tell you the number of families who are very permissive, especially now that marijuana is legal around mm -hmm. kids under 18 drinking or using marijuana. And particularly with the demographic we serve, which tends to be a more affluent demographic, very permissive, like, well, they're going to drink. I'd rather them drink in our basement. It's safer, which is not actually true. You know, it, kids actually tend to overindulge if they're in the safety of their own home and they're not worried about how are they going to have to get into an Uber to get home or whatever the other challenges might be. Right. And parents thinking, you know, the amount of parents we've worked with and, and my own to some degree, you know, in the beginning, particularly well, I experimented when I was young and, and, and not that they didn't take it seriously, but not having strict consequences and expectation of sobriety, I guess is what I would say. My parents did have that, but as the behaviors got more and more out of control, 
they sort of were more and more afraid of my brother and walked on eggshells, which did not serve him well. I think having clear expectations and not what we see, and this is probably the worst behavior, you know, it can be termed as enabling. I like the term protecting behavior better because I think it sounds more like what the intention is. But parents Mm -hmm. jumping in to fill the gaps and whether it's small things like hiding the alcohol from a party and not telling other parents that kids were drinking in their home when parents find that information out or big things like my child really didn't motivate himself in high school because he was under the influence a lot of the time, but I'm going to use our cloud and our money to, as what I call throw him over the fence in the school. I'm going to use every connection I can to get him into an Ivy league school, even though he doesn't deserve it. And that sort of pattern of protecting is established way younger. I think if parents can, set small limits, allow kids to fail, allow them to experience the pain of that. It, it doesn't mean that your child won't develop an, an addiction issue necessarily, but it does mean that when it happens, kids will have a better perspective on what you will and won't do as a parent rather than believing you're going to save them from every natural consequence that happens. Right, because otherwise it just becomes this never-ending pattern of catch-fall, 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 which could lead to one day not being able to catch that fall. Is that right? That's exactly right. And what we see for a lot of family members is they they live in extremes. It's either let the status quo continue or it's I'm going to double down on real consequences. We're not going to we're going to take everything away. I've heard parents we're going to shut the phone off, we're going to shut the TV off and they can sustain that for maybe 24 hours until the child sort of wears them down. So it's better mm. if parents can get in the habit of setting small limits that they know they can enforce and doing that early and often. And really thinking about things like access to privileges, money, and how is that distributed and what messaging is coming around that. You know, for a lot of the families we work with, including my own, if you're giving somebody who has a tendency towards addictive patterns, lots of access to things and lots of privileges, it's very possible that they're going to use that to a negative degree. So again, you know, it took my parents a while, but as they, as they saw more destructive behaviors, they then got much tighter around money and would pay rent directly. And we're not, our philosophy and my personal philosophy is not necessarily you kick the person out on the street. You know, there are people who believe in that. I, it wouldn't have worked in my family system, but I do think you can make life uncomfortable for a young adult or an adolescent who's financially dependent on you. You can get them to a point where oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they are externally motivated to make a change because they have very limited privileges and their their life is a lot smaller than what they want it to be. They then say, okay, fine, I'll see a therapist. Okay, fine, I'll sign that release or whatever the requirement is. But family members often become I would say, and it gets back to that manipulative behavior, people with substance use disorders often do what we call hostage-taking behaviors, where they really, they know how to work a family unit to the point that parents get afraid to set those limits, and the cycle just continues. Continues. To your point, Arden, um, there are many, many people who consider themselves to be strong people, strong parents, but and they say things like, well, I'm just going to that person, they need to leave, even if they're my child or whatever. But I think perhaps listening to you speak, the stronger parent or person is he or she who will actually stick through all of that, take the pain and live and love this person to help them through this as best as they can. My question to you is, and you've talked a lot about 
tips and, and things we can do as parents to help our kids when they are young, especially if we know there's a genetic predisposition. But once they're a full-blown adult, young adult or older than that, mm. and they're living with the situation, is there anything we can do, especially if they have, as you say, cycled through facilities several times over and over again? So in a clinical sense, I think the balance needs to be on in three ways. Looking at over the long term, what we often see are people try to solve the immediate crisis. He relapsed today, he goes to detox tomorrow, and we'll put him in a 30-day program. And that's when we talk about cycles, that's what my brother did. I think when we saw better success is when he went to a program and obviously, you know, you have to have some financial means to do this. So I, I acknowledge that we were in a privileged position to be able to offer this to my brother. But we did see better success when he was able to be stepped down through care. He started in a 24-hour, seven days a week supervised facility, moved to something a little less strict, and then moved to a sober home. And that the horizon for our own family in terms of progress was a year to two years, not he's going to turn this around in six months and go back to Georgetown, which was our first you know, plan when he first had mm. his issue. I think also really looking at the combination of thera- of clinical support and accountability for the whole family system. So lots of attention is paid to the person with the disorder, understandably so. Not a lot of support is provided to family members. And I would also argue that there tends to be a lot of how do we fix this person? How do we help them? And I think sometimes we get lost in, but we also need to make sure that we're drug testing and alcohol monitoring them. We know that statistics go drastically up for long-term sobriety if somebody is sober a year and then they go up again at five years. So you know, we recommend that families alcohol monitor or drug test clients for long periods of time. And again, that was a, a lesson I learned from my own family system that we started to do the further that we got into this process. I would also say family members finding whatever method, and I'm not one to judge. I like I, I our personal family belief was we want to love Chris using or not. It doesn't mean love him, give him everything he asked for, but love him as a human, be there for him emotionally regardless of his stance. Some families can't do that, but all family members can find ways to get healthier, whether that's through free services like Al-Anon or drugfree.org, or whether that's through family therapy. There's ways that people can get stronger as humans. So I think, and I think, and, and family members can also look, you know, at themselves and hold themselves accountable to how am I promoting recovery with this individual and and am I adding to a problem you know we've we evaluated every holiday is it safe to serve alcohol even when my brother was two years sober three years sober is this a good idea or a bad idea and so I think families having that long-term view making sure their loved one and they themselves have both clinical support or some type of emotional support and also have a way to keep themselves accountable to the long-term goals. Those would be my recommendations for what they can, what you can do if, if somebody sort of cycled in and out. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll say is people do often find some form of leverage and it sounds very negative, but family members can often find something that will motivate that person. And whether, you know, a lot, lot, I've talked a lot about financial leverage, but for older adults, we get, you know, sometimes people will call us about a parent who is aging, who's got an alcohol problem. You know, Mm. in those cases, it could be an intervention process. It could be saying, you're not going to be around my grandkids if you're not, if you're drinking because it's just too painful to watch. So there are ways to find, avenues to try and motivate someone if they're not motivated themselves. 
These are such difficult things to navigate. Arden, thank you so much for your honesty and sort of for bringing us into your world. Getting back to the premise of the True Fiction Project, the audio for this interview we are going to give to a fiction writer. And my question to you is, if you had to give that writer a writing prompt, what would it be? You mean in terms of where they would, what focus they should have? Yeah, what kind of story would they create? Could they create based upon this interview? It's a great, it's a great question, and it's one I've wrestled with. I mean, my brother, when he was alive, tried has actually I have it a, a manuscript he wrote called Dopey. It was about his journeys, and we talked about it once. My other brother and I went to the premiere of Ben is Back, the movie, and there's been so much between a beautiful boy. There's been a lot of different memoir stories written about addiction and and the pain that it causes families. I, what I haven't seen a lot of is sort of what the what the post recovery stories can look like for families and for individuals. And I'm not suggesting that there needs to be an overly happy ending where the person, you know, Mm -hmm. then (laughs) runs a country or does something outrageous. But I, my brother and I, when he was alive, Chris and I used to talk all the time about, you know, it would be great if some of these stories weren't just, I I don't want to say glorifying, but not just focusing on the, the heroin use and the sort of, the lengths to which somebody with an addiction issue will go to and in terms of destroying themselves. But if it also could tell sort of the ups and downs of, of what a recovery journey could look like. And I, I don't know if that's as interesting to people. It's certainly interesting to me. It's it, I will say the families that we serve are very interested in some of the nuanced issues that come out of loving someone, you know, are they going to get back on track with general life goals? Can they have a family? Can they get back to a meaningful purpose in life in terms of work and education? Because you come off this cliff of pure terror and fear, but you have all the rest of it, you know, you have for the rest of your life, are you supposed to be watching out for this person in terms of, you know, should they never walk into a casino again? And can they be around money? All these other questions. So I guess that that would be my hope for a story is something that kind of um, looks at that dynamic. Well, it's an interesting challenge. And I say, let's put it out to the writers and see what they come up with. So Arden, thank you so much. Tell us quickly before we wrap up where we can learn more about all the wonderful work you do. Sure. So the name of the company is O'Connor Professional Group. Our website is O'Connor, O-C-O-N-N-O-R. P is in professional, G is in group.com. And happy to be a resource to anybody who needs it. I will also say, while it's a very edgy podcast, my brother's co-host still runs his podcast, which was called Dopey. And there's a lot of stories for people who are both still using and trying to find a path to recovery and those who are recovered. And so I, I do like to mention that as a resource. Some families, some families find it way too graphic, including my own parents, and some families find a lot of humor and grace and redemption through the podcast. So, Arden, thank you so much. That's one I'm definitely going to check out. That's Arden O'Connor. She is the founder of the O'Connor Professional Group. And this was her story of her family's journey through love and loss. Thanks, Arden. Thank you. I'm Renita Hora, your host for The True Fiction Project. Stay tuned for more. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which, of course, is to create fiction out of nonfiction.
स्मॉल विक्टरी रिटन एंड वॉइस्ड बाई शोभा निहलानी द स्मॉल विक्टरी टैरन वॉज अ स्लीप ऑन द सोफा द क्विल्ट हाफ ऑन द फ्लोर हाफ ट्विस्टेड अराउंड हिज लेग्स सू स्टेयर्ड एट हर ब्रदर कंसर्न्ड दैट ही हैडेंट स्टर्ड इन अ वायल शी मूव्ड क्लोजर एंड वॉचड the gentle rise and fall of his chest she felt a sense of relief he looked peaceful in sleep taran was in his late 20s while sue was a few years older she had witnessed how he was constantly getting into trouble especially when he struggled during his teen years taran couldn't focus in school and later lost himself in a potent concoction of drugs He had tried many times to be clean and failed miserably. Sue had coaxed him to join a different program. The doubts seeped in. Was he really drug-free as he claimed? Sue wrestled with her feelings. She believed that one day Darren would be fine and lead a normal life. She was protective of him. As she sat on the other side of the sofa, watching her brother she noticed that he had lost a lot of weight his cheeks sunken and hair receding yet he had that innocent quality from when he was a kid it was unlike him to come knocking on her door in the dead of night she was awakened by the desperate sounds as she hurried to open the door she felt a rush of fear and anxiety Sue let him in looked for any telltale signs of him being in the throes of addiction he claimed he wasn't he had a bad dream he needed a safe space to sleep he said she hesitated only for a moment before letting her brother in she offered him a warm glass of milk it had been his comfort drink as a child Darren silently drank it all and then lay down on the sofa. Before Sue could come back with the duvet, he had fallen asleep. There was a duffel bag on the floor. He had brought it with him. Sue was tempted to look inside. She didn't. Another round of disappointments, she wondered. As much as she wanted him to wake up, she was afraid of what he might say. The previous evening at the door before she let him in she asked have you Sue's question died in her throat when he shook his head vigorously could she believe him he had been in the program for 2 years now he was clean that's what they said when Darren was in college dad had shared openly about substance abuse and how it can get out of control and ruin lives when darren fell into that trap of losing himself in exactly what dad had warned him against it was a difficult time for their parents they didn't know what they could do except take him to therapy and wonder if they failed at their parenting skills
The situation got worse over time. Her parents were shocked at the extent to which Darren would go to feed his addiction. He would lie, steal, and emotionally blackmail them. They trusted that Darren was getting better, but it was all an illusion. Darren hadn't recovered after five or six times in rehab. The therapists and psychiatrists were unable to come up with solutions. Darren was clever and sharp. He knew how to make everyone think he was fine and recovering. Sue had seen the different stages of emotions that, at times, drove her mother to tears for days, worrying about her son. There was so much anxiety, love and hate, anger and resentment at home. Cracks in the relationship started, and at one point, Dad was unforgiving for Darren's failure to get clean. He just gave up on his son. Dad couldn't handle it and threw him out of the house. It's over. Get out now! When Sue found a place and a job, she was able to distance herself from the daily chaos. It also gave her a chance to reflect. She loved her brother dearly and offered him a space in her life. Whenever he needed her, she would be there for him. Sue took charge of finding programs and centers that would be good for him. Sue saw her brother for what he was, a good soul caught up in the web of substance abuse. She had read up and researched on why it was harder for him to get off his drug addiction. She discovered that her brother had ADHD and therefore had a higher predisposition towards addictions. What happened last night worried her. She slept fitfully as thoughts of despair and hope circled through her mind. It was 8 a.m. when Darren finally woke up. Sue watched his movements as she prepared breakfast. She occasionally glanced at him. He opened his duffel bag, took out some of his clothes. He headed to the bathroom. She heard the shower. Later, he returned to the table neat and clean. Sue handed him a glass of juice. He looked at her with a big smile. Darren had never smiled like that before. Sue kept a straight face. What's up? I'm going for a job interview, he said in a serious tone. At the library. Sue looked at him curiously. His eyes were focused, alert, his demeanor normal. He sat down. She placed a plate of scrambled eggs and toast in front of him. That's great, she said. Then she had to ask. What happened last night? He looked sheepishly at her. I had a crazy dream. That's all. He dug in and ate. She didn't probe further. It wasn't necessary. Sue sat down and joined him. They ate together in silence. She felt a sense of lightness. Her brother was looking fine. In fact, in her heart, she felt a flicker of joy. He was looking better than fine. Her brother was taking responsibility for his life. In her heart, she celebrated the victory. 
Sue looked at her brother with a sense of affection. Darren noticed her staring at him. What? Are you ready for your interview? She smiled. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at